Again, it's great to be here, and I love studying God's Word, and that's what we get to do this morning. So if you have your Bibles or your phone or your tablet, go ahead and open up, turn, turn on Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 32. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 32. I'll have the passage up on the screen behind me as well. And you're invited to follow along with me now as I read the word of God. This is the word of the Lord. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ." If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, putting away lying, Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you this morning and we ask for your blessing. We pray that you would bless our ability to hear your words. Lord, you know how hard it is to speak to fallen, sinful, finite human creatures. Our hearts can often be hard, We often push back at what you want to say. We want to do what we want to do. Even if we want you in our lives, we don't always want you to be number one. We want to put our job or our marriage or our kids or our health or our money or whatever it is, we want to put those things number one. And insofar as we do that, we cannot hear you rightly. And so I just pray for grace this morning. Pray that you would just forgive our sins even as we listen to your word. I pray that we would 
have the grace and the strength to lay down our arms and to receive whatever You want to say to us this morning. I pray not only for the ability to hear Your Word, but I pray for the ability to do Your Word. I pray we wouldn't be as so many in America who are hearers of the Word, but are not doers, deceiving only themselves. I pray that we would be Christians in deed and in truth, and that Christ would be glorified among us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How important is fashion? In addition to the fact that at least some clothing is a bare necessity, no pun intended, what we wear, how we wear it, and where we wear it is very, very big business. According to the McKinsey and Company 2017 State of Fashion Report, quote, fashion is one of the past decade's rare economic success stories. Over that period, the industry has grown at 5.5% annually, according to the Global Fashion Index, and it is now worth an estimated $2.4 trillion. In fact, not only does it touch everyone, but the fashion industry would be the world's seventh largest economy if ranked alongside individual countries' GDP. Let that soak in. But why are people so preoccupied with what they wear? In a 2012 Forbes article, the authors dove in to explore the question of why, beyond the bare necessity, are we so preoccupied with clothing? And this is what they said. It's no news that your wardrobe says a lot about you. What you wear can inform a passerby of your type of employment, as well as your ambitions, emotions, and spending habits. And now it's even launched a whole new type of psychology. Clinical psychologist Dr. Jennifer Baumgartner literally wrote the book on this phenomenon, which she calls the psychology of dress. In her book entitled, You Are What You Wear, What Your Clothes Reveal About You, she explains not only how psychology determines our clothing choices, but how to overcome key psychological issues your wardrobe might be bringing to light in your everyday life or even at work. She says, shopping and spending behaviors often come from internal motivations, such as emotions, experiences, and culture, says Dr. Baumgartner. You look at shopping or storing behaviors, even putting together outfits, and people think of it as fluff. But any behavior is rooted in something deeper. I look at the deeper meaning of choices that people make just like I would in therapy. We spoke with her to figure out why clothes are so revealing of our personalities, that is. What messages they're sending and how you can use your wardrobe to change how others perceive you and even how you think about yourself, end quote. As it turns out, God is also quite concerned with what we wear. But while the world is often preoccupied with its outward appearance or physical clothing, God is most concerned with our inward appearance or spiritual clothing. 
In Ephesians 4, 22 through 24, the Apostle Paul, speaking by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, employs the language of clothing, dress, and fashion in order to explain to us what God wants us, as followers of Jesus, to wear every day. And so I want to take a look at Ephesians 4, 17 through 32, through the lens of the question, what are you wearing? My first point is this, what not to wear? Look at verses 17 through 19. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness." Okay, so Paul, in terms of this question of what are you wearing, Paul begins by telling us what not to wear. And he tells the Ephesian church, and so he is telling us today, we are not to wear the mindset of a non-believer. The mindset of a non-believer. Look again at what he says in detail. In verse 17... It says, this I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. few interesting points to note here. Most early manuscripts, and therefore, if you have a different translation, maybe ESV, uh, NRSV, um, NLT, probably NIV, they actually will omit the phrase, as the rest of. So instead of saying, as the rest of the Gentiles, which, of course, is calling the Ephesians, basically, you are of this group. So you're Gentiles, and we do know predominantly the church is a Gentile church. But interestingly, the earliest manuscripts omit that, so that makes a difference. It would therefore say, do not walk as the Gentiles, and that's interesting, because they, in a sense, they are Gentiles. So if he's saying, don't live as Gentiles, even though you're Gentiles, what is he saying? You are not Gentiles anymore. Or at the very least, being Gentile can no longer mean what it now means as a Christian. So in other words, our sense of identity has to change. And for many people, they don't do that. Many churchgoers do not change their core identity. They invite Christianity into their life. And many people have acknowledged that identity is a complex thing. We don't consider ourselves to be all one thing. We actually have many what they show as like concentric circles. You have your core identity. That's the most fundamental, essential thing about you. That's at the dead center. But then you're also other things, and that starts expanding around that circle. Eventually, you get to things on the outer ring where, yeah, it's true, but it's not a big deal. You could change that, and you wouldn't lose your identity. You wouldn't lose your sense of self. People would still know who you are if you got rid of that. But the closer you get to the middle, if you were to lose that, you feel like you're losing your very identity, like who I am. This is why walking with friends of mine who have gone through divorce, for example, when they go through a divorce, 
They're dealing with something that is very close, if not the very center of their identity. Even somebody who puts Jesus at the center, your relationship, your marriage, and even rightfully so, it's going to be the second ring probably around that center of Christ. And so even if you're perfectly walking with Jesus, if you go through a traumatic divorce, I think most are, some maybe worse than others, you're going to feel like your very identity is shaken. You're literally going to be asking the question, as friends of mine have asked, who am I now? What do I do with my life? I can't even go to this job anymore because everybody knows me as, as the husband or wife of so-and-so. My kids, how do I look my kids in the eye? I thought I was this. It's something that is very, very close to center. And if we're not careful, it is the center. For many of us Christians, Jesus can be involved and we think, well, box check, that's fine. I go to church, I know the Bible, I can answer lots of Bible trivia questions at the community group gathering or something, but that doesn't mean Jesus is the dead center of your core identity. Now the Gentiles, as Paul is referring to them, are those who do not see themselves as God's people. They do not see themselves as belonging to Christ. And an entire way of life, what they wear, springs out and flows out from that identity. So insofar as being a Gentile here has to do with how you conceive of yourself in relation to God and to others, they are not Gentiles anymore. Or even if we want to use the language of the New King James, don't be like the rest of them. Okay, but once again, you are set apart. You may belong to this group at one level of the circles, but it better not be the center. Because to be a Christian means Jesus is at the center. And here's the mindset that goes along with not having Jesus at the center. You should no longer walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. That is a very fascinating word. Matiates. And if you were with us during our sermon series through the book of Ecclesiastes, you would know that Matiates is the Greek translation of the Greek or the Hebrew word hevel, which is the word vanity. And as I argued their vanity in the sense that we normally think about it in English, like that person's so vain. They probably don't, you think this song is about you. You know, it's like they're looking in the mirror and that's vanity. But I told you, that's not what hevel meant. Hevel means breath or vapor or mist. It's not necessarily the idea of something's wrong and vain in our language has that connotation, although it could be. But its central meaning is the idea of simply maybe something that's not bad, but it's fleeting. It's like a mist. It's like in wintertime, you know, once a year for like a couple weeks when it's actually cold in Southern California, and you breathe out at night, and you can actually see your breath, and then go to grab it. Go to grab that breath you see, and it, it slips right through your fingers. That's what Hevel is. It's this fleeting sort of life, a life that is there one moment and gone the next. And interestingly, you know the story of Cain and Abel, I'm all sure. Well, Abel's name in Hebrew is Hevel, mist, vapor. He was there one day and gone the next. So what Paul is saying is you can no longer live an empty, transient 
insubstantial life. But that's what many Christians do. They, they live a fleeting life. They live for things that don't last. And they tell themselves it's fine because I go to church and the things I do aren't necessarily bad. But that's not the point. I mean, that's like, you know, first grade stuff. Yes, yes, great. I'm glad you're not doing horrible, bad, awful things. But are you living for things that don't matter? I think it was the great missionary, they call him the father of modern missions, William Carey. And he famously said, I am not at all afraid of failure. I am afraid of succeeding at things that don't matter. We have to be careful not just not to do bad things, but don't do things that are simply permissible, but to be honest, it's you wasting your life. It's not what you were meant for. Is that really what you'd be doing and how you'd be thinking if Jesus were smack dead center of your identity? If all I am and all I have all belongs to Him? This life is a vapor. It's a mist. It's here one day. It's gone the next. I'm going to stand before God and give an account of my life. Is this the way I would want to be living? Or am I living like each day is I'm just going to have it forever? That it's something I can grab onto. More and more with the writers of the Bible, I, my heart sincerely can see that most of this is Hevel. Matthias, here one day, gone the next. We cannot be, if Jesus is at the center, we cannot think like those who don't know Jesus, who live for things that don't matter. He goes on to say in verse 18, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their hearts. The condition of those who don't know God is it's not just that they don't have the right ideas, although that's probably true as well. But that's not it alone. Sometimes Christians think, well, if I just get the right ideas, if I just read the right apologetics book, if I just get the answer to that trivia question, where did Cain get his wife or something like that, it's like, you know, if I just get the answer to that, oh, this person will get saved. But that's not the main problem. People are not non-believers simply because they don't have the right data. They're not believers fundamentally because they don't want to be. They don't desire God. Their truth is relational. All of reality consists because God allows it to be what it is. That's why Jesus can be called the truth, capital T. He's the truth by which all other lowercase t, little truths, are possible. So unbelievers, they don't want God. Because truth is relational. And I think whether conscious or unconscious, we do know that. We do know that as the word of God is being given, I'm listening and I'm like, okay, if this is true, what do, what do I got to change? Well, well, wait a minute. If this, is true, if this is true, what God did and Jesus came down and he died on the cross for my sins and there's only one God and there's only one way to heaven when I die and only one resurrection of the dead and there's going to be judgment. If all that's true, that's like heavenly stuff. But you're also calculating as you're hearing that, what am I going to need to do different this week? Am I going to have to say goodbye to this person? Am I going to have to say I need to stop spending there and start spending here? Are these people going to say goodbye to me? 
We are constantly negotiating the truth relationally because the truth is relational. And so we don't want to fit in with the unbelieving world in this sense. Paul goes on to say in verse 19, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. You know, some people will sin. Maybe they'll send their brains out and then you, maybe it's a family member and you want to talk to them. Thanksgiving's coming up. So maybe some of you are going to have those lovely conversations with a family member about God that, you know, you don't talk about it for a year, but then it's, it's the holidays and it might come up. So you're going to talk about it. And you, you might think that if a person's sinning and the Bible says you have a conscience, that you're going to feel bad about it. But many people, and perhaps you know this as well, can send their brains out, look you square in the eye, and sincerely say, I feel I'm doing nothing wrong. Paul talks about this condition. That though what Paul says in Romans 1 and 2 is true, that God has given you a conscience. Even without a Bible, you have an unwritten Torah written on the heart. It's called the conscience. And that you do know, you do have thoughts about God. You do know something about God. And you can respond to that by humbling yourself and saying yes to what you know and being faithful to that inner law that you have. Or you can defile it. You can say no to it. You can contradict your own conscience. And when you do that, there's a consequence. Not just at the last day when you stand before God, which we talk about. There's a consequence now. The more you sin, the more numb you grow to your sin. And for some people, they know that, and they purposely use that to their, in their mind, advantage. I did this sin. There was some pleasure involved in it, but I felt guilty about doing it. What's the best way to get rid of that? Do it again. Do it a lot more. Do it more often. Do it and make sure I'm around other people who do the same. And then I can numb my conscience past feeling. So when God's people are out in the world and they want to fit in and they're looking at people and they're going, oh, maybe that's the way I, I ought to live my life. Well, if they're past feeling, how can they be a faithful guide of what God wants for your life? And you have to keep that in mind because some people that don't know God, um, they can be nice people, relatively nice people. You know, socially, they can handle themselves well and maybe witting and charming and, and all this kind of stuff. But at the same time, if they're sinning habitually, they're numbing themselves to their own conscience. And therefore, we have to be careful. Certain things attract, outward things attract, but should they attract us? And if so, to what extent? This being past feeling. We never want to engage continually in sin. Yes, A, and number one, because it grieves God. That is number one. But B, even for yourself, it is not good to numb your conscience. And the conscience is sort of like a, a moral pain sensory input. You know, it's like if you're playing basketball and, you, you know, you come down and you, you blow out your ankle, your knee. Should you go see it? You know, and the pain's there. Should you, like, just pop a bunch of pain pills and, oh, well, now I don't feel it. And then I'll go back to playing. Or should you be like, oh, well, the pain isn't the problem. It's the pain is telling me there is a problem. 
and I need to go check that out. For many people, what they do with sin is just they, they pop the pain pills so they don't feel the pain and they don't deal with what's causing the pain. So sin is very, very important in our lives that we recognize its numbing effect on us. And therefore, whether it's some great sin that everyone would be like, oh my gosh, you do that. Or whether it's some little thing that maybe the only people that know about it are God and you. But whatever that is, if you sin habitually in that area, you will grow numb to it. And the more you grow numb to it, the more this worldly identity is going to be yours. You will start to wear what the Gentiles wear. And Paul says very clearly, this mindset that results from a disconnection from God and a refusal to make Christ your core identity is what you and I are not to wear. Secondly, having told us what not to wear, Paul introduces us that it's time for a new design school. It is time for a new design school. Look at verses 20 through 24. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. So look again just, just real quick at verses 22 and 24. This is where we get our fashion or clothing metaphor. He says put off. And this is directly the language that's, that's about wearing clothes. That's the context. The language is always used. It's about what you wear and what you're taking off. He says, put off your former conduct, the old man, verse 24, and put on, dress yourselves, make it your fashion, the new man which was created in God. So you've got the fashion element there. And then look at verses 20 and 21. You have not learned Christ. If you have heard him and been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus. He uses three different verbs related to education. We have a fashion design school going on here. And let me tell you some things about this design school that we need to understand. First of all, the grand subject matter of this design school is Christ. Paul says, you have not so learned stuff, ideas, abstract, philosophical concepts. Christ. Christ is the grand subject matter of the church. The very purpose of the church, the thing that holds all the church's teaching together, is Christ. The church can have many things to say about many things in life. We can talk about the fashion industry. We can talk about the entertainment industry. We can talk about business. We can talk about law. We can talk about personal relationships. We can talk about sexuality. We can talk about all these things, and that's great. And many churches in America are talking about all these things because that's what everyone is interested in. That's not necessarily wrong. But it can go wrong. 
when the grand subject matter of the church is no longer Christ. I marveled, I, I looked up what are the fastest growing churches in America. And there was a number of churches, and you know, some are, it was crazy numbers, like 35,000 people attend a church, and you know, 25,000 people in 20. And then I went to the websites, and I listened to the sermons of the top five churches. Not one of them preached Christ on their Sunday morning service. Now, to be fair, I didn't necessarily hear heresy, like outright rank heresy, maybe one of them. But it was simply the omission. It was talking about things related to life that Christ has something to say on, but he was not the grand subject matter of the sermon. And I think that matters. Something has to hold everything together. And again, I know some people will push back and I'm going to talk about Christ, he's my grand subject, and I'm not going to talk about anything that's relevant besides that. Well, I, I don't, that's not what I'm arguing for. But I'm saying that Christ is the grand subject matter, and so whatever we talk about, whatever we teach about anything that relates to life should clearly point back to Jesus. Jesus is what holds everything together. Did you ever, did any of you go to university? Think about that word, university. It's the idea of unity and diversity. But of course, for diversity to have unity, something has to hold it together. The university was born out of medieval Europe. And there were the arts and the sciences, and the grand science, the queen of the sciences, was theology. The reason theology was the queen of the sciences is because it was in God, the one God that holds together the diversity of the sciences and the humanities. But we have since thrown out the thing that made the university a university. As one theologian lamented, we should more appropriately call today's university in America polytechnic utiliversity. That's actually what you're going to. You'll learn a lot about many things and nothing holds it all together. We're all over the map. Because Jesus is no longer the thing holding it together. Now to say that's true of public universities is one thing. To see that it can be true in a local church is a travesty. Jesus must today and forever be the grand subject of the church. And Paul assumes that that's what's going to happen when you go to a church. You will have learned Christ. Not only is Christ the grand subject matter, but he is also the grand teacher. Look what he says in verse 21. If indeed you have heard him. If you have heard him. Notice he doesn't say someone talk about him like it's second or third hand. That's strange. You've heard Christ. You've heard Jesus' voice speaking to you. This is incredible because as far as we know, none of the Ephesians ever saw Jesus. This is decades later after Jesus' ascension. How, how is it they heard Jesus? 
What Christians have said for thousands of years about the Bible is that it is the very breath of God. That when one reads the Bible, yes, you're reading about people and times and places, and then on a Sunday another person gets up and speaks, but through the Holy Spirit, these words, the word preached, if it is faithful to what is said and written here and the reason for which it is written, then you, sitting here on a Sunday, can hear the voice of your Savior. Jesus is not only the grand subject. He is the grand teacher. Hopefully when you pick a church, this one or another one, you do it because you can hear the voice of Jesus there. And if you can't hear it, even if it's, they've got great programs and, you know, a carnival for the kids every Sunday, a petting zoo, whatever, those aren't wrong. But if you don't hear the voice of Jesus, nothing will substitute. Nothing will substitute. Unless, again, Jesus is not ultimately what you want. And if Jesus is your core identity, that's what you're attracted to. Because nothing else will do. I can appreciate skill and talent, ability, and, you know, all these other things, but it is no substitute for Christ. He is the teacher, the ultimate teacher, the over-shepherd, the great pastor of the church. And then notice, not only is Christ the grand subject, not only is He the grand teacher, but He Himself is the classroom, the school in which we learn. He says, if indeed, verse 21, you have heard Him and have been taught by Him as the truth is in Jesus. The learning itself takes place within the sphere of Jesus. This is very important because Paul's doctrine of the church, why does the church matter? His doctrine is not, well, because they do this and they do this and they do this. No. For Paul, his doctrine of the church rests upon his doctrine of Christ. That the church is the body of Christ. He is the head, but we are the body. Jesus is ascended into heaven. And so tangibly, physically, if people want to experience the physical presence of Christ, they are to go to the church. The church is a school of faith. The church is a school of design where your participation in it fashions you into the kind of man or woman who knows and looks like Jesus. It's time for a new design school. And I'd say this implies you may not have known it, you may not have applied, you may not have paid your application fee, you may have not have gotten an acceptance letter, but before you were in Christ, you were already in a design school. It was called the world. And it dressed you, and it led you, and it taught you wherever it wanted you to go. And if you're going to follow Jesus, you must say, I will no longer participate. I will not allow that fashion school to design me into the kind of human I was never meant to be. I will participate in this new design school of Christ. Many people are challenging whether the church today even matters. You can just stay home and watch an internet service. You can just do whatever. It's like, oh, I don't need that. I don't need this. 
you cannot replace the school of faith. You cannot replace the body of Christ. It is the place in which God designs you. And we'll talk about more why that is practically the case as we continue. The next thing Paul tells us, having told us what not to wear, told us it's time for a new design school, he's now going to tell us what to wear. And these are very practical, and they result from an inward change of putting Christ first. Let's look at verses 25 through 31. Therefore, put away lying. Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good and necessary for edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Repeatedly here, Paul contrasts the school of the world's design, what we would have done, what Paul calls the old self, and he contrasts that with what the new school of Christ is designing you to be. And sometimes we don't quite know what our heart is or what another person's heart is, but we can know our actions. And notice that each one of these things, let's say I separate myself from the church. Can I know whether I'm any of these things if I'm not around other people? How do I know if I'm selfish if I'm alone? How do I know that I'm angry if I have nothing to do with the person who makes me angry? How do I know if I'm patient if I'm never around impatient people? How do I know if I can be gracious to other believers when I'm not around other believers to offend me and make me have to forgive them? You have to be in the school of faith to actually know that you're even doing this. Let's look at each of these articles of clothing that we are to put off and put on. So in verse 25, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Untruth, lies, that which is not reality, we are not to communicate. And, and don't assume that only means certain motivation. You know, like, like you have completely selfish motivation, I'm lying because I'll get in trouble if I don't lie. But have you ever told a lie thinking you were doing somebody a favor? Does this dress make me look fat? Right? We will ask people things like that. And we can tell, or, hey, am I gifted at this? When maybe you think no, and you go, oh, yeah, you're, you're so gifted at that. I was talking to my wife about this the other day with respect to our kids. And I love my kids. They're adorable most of the time. I love them. Um, and I think they're each gifted. But they're not each gifted at everything. And I don't think I'm doing my kid a favor if they come up to me and say, Daddy, I want to do this. This is the thing I want to do. And clearly, and for sake of argument, clearly their gifting is another area, and clearly it is not there. For the sake of argument, that's established. Do I say, oh, honey, you should put your whole life in that. That's a good idea. Because I don't want to make them feel bad and say, honey, that's not your strong suit. 
that might not be where your gifts lie. See, some people will lie, and in a sense, they're, they're trying to do somebody a favor, but it's more of a sentimental thing, and there is some selfishness involved. I, I, I don't want you to look at me negatively. I don't, I don't want to hurt your feelings because then that'll make me feel bad, and I don't want to feel bad, and I don't want to deal with that, so you don't do it. Paul doesn't go into why you might lie. He says you must not lie. For my son, telling him the truth about what I think he's good at, it's like I'm trying to help him. I know for me, I wish I knew more of what my gifts were and weren't when I was younger, don't you? Well, some of you might have known what you were meant to be when you were like five. I find that that's not true for most people. And especially today when most industries are changing so fast, most people, no matter what you do, you're going to be changing jobs many times throughout your life, especially if you're younger. So we want to speak the truth no matter what and don't reason to ourselves, well, what, what the reason might be. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. There's something very important here that I want to point out. And that is that we are actually given permission to be angry. Did anyone notice that? It says, be angry and do not sin. One huge misunderstanding that many modern American Christians have is that it's a sin to be angry, no matter what. And if you are angry, you should pretend you're not. You should just hide it, stuff it, pretend it isn't there. But that's not what Paul said. He said, be angry, but don't sin. And don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Which means, again, don't, I think what that means is don't just stuff it down and do nothing with it and think it won't come out somewhere. One of the places we know for a fact we are able to express anger and it's actually healthy is the book of Psalms. If you pay attention carefully to the book of Psalms, the authors of the Psalms, David included, will actually voice out his anger and his frustration. And what's crazy about it is it's actually written in the inspired word of God and recorded as a song for believers to sing but we typically don't sing them, and I can understand why. Here's a great example. Psalm 58, a psalm of David. Do you indeed speak righteousness, you silent ones? Do you judge uprightly, you sons of men? No. In heart you work wickedness. You weigh out the violence of your hands in earth. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. Their poison is like the poison of a serpent. They are like the deaf cobra that stops its ear, which will not heed the voice of charmers, charming ever so skillfully. O oh Lord, break their teeth in their mouth. Break out the fangs of the young lions, O oh Lord. Let them flow away as waters, which run continually when he bends his bow. Let his arrows be as if it cut them in pieces. Let them be like a snail, which melts away way as it goes, like a stillborn child of a woman that may never see the sun. Is there anything else you'd like to say, David? Does David sound angry to you? And we actually have a psalm that was sung. One of the things I would have taught Israel is, it is not safe to hide your anger. Nor is it necessarily wrong to be angry but the first thing you do with it is give it to God and you say well how do I give it can I pick up a tangible object and give it to God you have it being given here you speak it out to God 
If you are angry about something, Lord, I'm angry that this person does vile, wicked, horrible things. They've hurt my family, and they're blessed. They're living a blessed life, and they do wrong. Lord, and that makes me angry. And I have a sense of injustice in my heart, and and it's just bothering me. And I haven't been talking to you about it because good Christians just don't talk about it and pretend that it's fine and pretend that I'm forgiven, but I'm starting to realize it's becoming rottenness in my bones and it's poisoning my life. The safest thing I can do is give it to you. Be angry and do not sin. And when it says, let the sun not go down your eyes, I don't think that means go straight away to the person who's ticking you off that makes you angry. Some people think that that's what it means. You'll go settle it with them. Uh Uh-uh. That's actually probably a bad idea. If you go do that in the flesh, how's that going to work out? You ever done that before? I went straight to the person I wanted to strangle. Yeah. uh, You know, it was a funny thing. It didn't work out too great. Don't let it set. Don't let the sun set before you admit, confess your anger to God. And say, God, this is is too much for me. I I need to give this anger to you. And I need to trust you will deal with it in your fatherly wisdom in a way I cannot possibly understand. And I, I want to give that to you. So be angry and do not sin. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who has need. Fundamentally, what, what your identity in Christ should do is transform you from a taker into a giver. Some people go, well, I don't steal, but maybe you're a taker, though. Maybe you just take from people's lives. That's, that's what you do. You take, take, take. And again, we all need to receive something, so it's understandable. But what Christianity does is it turns you into a radically generous person where you are now known more for your giving than your taking. You may not technically steal, but have we become gospel generous people that are known for our giving, not our taking? Let no corrupt word, verse 29, proceed out of your mouth, but what is good and necessary for edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Again, the, the word corrupt is like the word they would use for rotting fruit. Do not speak words that just tear people down. That make people feel like crud about themselves. And we're to do the opposite. We're literally supposed to speak words that constructively build up people. Again, I don't think this means speaking mindless platitudes. But I do, I do think it means be constructive. Quite literally, oikodome is, is the word for construction. Put something together intentionally brick by brick. So when you're speaking to someone, like it could be a criticism, but it should be what we call a constructive criticism. If I'm going to say something, it's not because I want to make you feel bad. It's the opposite. I want to make you do well. I want my words to help you do well in your marriage, in your life, in your business, in your walk with God. I want to build you up. I I don't want to tear you down and go, well, it's true. I know there's some Christians who, who believe they have that gift of like tearing people down. It's not a gift. It's a curse. 
We are to be people who build other people up with our speech. Interestingly, thrown in, in all these very practical things is something that's not so much directed to people, but directed to God. Verse 30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Again, here you get, and especially in the doctrine of the Trinity, and this was developed first not with respect to the Holy Spirit so much, but of course Christ, who is Jesus. And wrestling with that, well, there's only one God, Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There can only be one God. And so if Jesus is being called God in many ways, or Yahweh in particular, if he's being called the name of the Lord, the name of the Lord's being attributed to him, passages in the Old Testament that the New Testament writers and Jesus refer to himself, but instead of the name Yahweh, Jesus is there, well, that kind of tells you that it's speaking to Jesus. But later it was developed this idea of the Trinity. Is the third person of the Trinity a thing or is he a person? And one of the ways the early church fathers established that the, the God is triune and that the Spirit is a person is the characteristics, the personal pronouns, he, 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 not it. And this here, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. You cannot grieve a non-person. You can't break the heart of a rock, but you can break the heart of a person. And the New Testament teaches that when you trust in Jesus alone for salvation, the Holy Spirit comes to reside. And the Holy Spirit is with you wherever you go, and it is a personal relationship. And so he says, don't let anything you do, whether it's one of these things or an unwritten thing, could be an unwritten thing. Might not be a rule for someone else, but it is for you. If there's an unwritten thing and you are grieving the Holy Spirit, then we must not do that. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's witness is a guide for your life. The Bible tells us what all of us are to believe and do equally as Christians. But the Spirit is free to speak to us uniquely and individually in our lives in a way he might not necessarily speak to another person because you are different. That's why I think the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is so important. He can give us personal, individualized guidance when we need it. So as a part of your life guide, I may not know why, but if I walk into a space or a situation and I feel that the Spirit is being grieved, that should be a warning for me. We don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. And lastly, in verse 31, he says, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away. Wrath is, is the, uh, it's the visible outburst of anger, and it, and it can manifest in acts of violence. So wrath is obvious. But, and clamor, that's like lashing out at people with your words, right? Like maybe you would never hit another person with your fist, but man, you know how to throw out some great insults that make people cry. That's clamor, just using your words to beat people up. These other two are important, bitterness and anger. Because these are these more subtle things underneath. Subterranean streams, they're there on the surface, no one knows. But deep down, there is a growing bitterness and resentment and refusal to be reconciled to someone or something. And those things will just become poison to you. And they're not the kind of thing most people, even in the church, will necessarily be able to point out to you, obviously, unless you open up. And that's why relationships in the church, that you have some relationships with some people in the church, matters so that you can be able to share some of these things.
and bring some clarity on them. But all these things, the bitterness, wrath, anger, just evil speaking, it needs to be put away. You are not to wear these things anymore. You are to take them off. And lastly, what motivates what we wear? Verse 32 says, And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Now, a big question, doctrinal, theological question we should ask is, what happens if I don't do all these things perfectly? What hap- do I have to do all these things perfectly to go to heaven? If you believe that you have to do all these things perfectly to go to heaven, And let's say, if you don't do them, you will go to hell. Now, don't get me wrong, you probably have a strong motivation to do good works, don't you? Namely, fear and guilt. If that's what you think, that I have to make myself right with God, that this isn't isn't me living from salvation, but for it, then you will know, because fear and guilt will drive your good works. And on the surface, people might be fine with that because, hey, a lot of us are pragmatists. I don't care what your motivation is just as the job gets done. Just as long as you're moral, I don't care. If you're my neighbor, (laughs) you know, it's like you're tired, you're coming home from work, and you're just exhausted. Do I care what your motivation for not being loud at 2 in the morning is? It's just like, just don't be loud. I don't care about your motivation. God cares about your motivation, and it does make a difference. If you believe that you must do these things in order to be saved, then fear and guilt are your motivators. But if we believe what the Apostle Paul already told us in this very book, in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. This is a world changer. If I'm not doing all these things, putting off the old man, putting off the fashion of the world, putting on the new man, putting on the fashion of the kingdom of God. If I'm not doing all that in order to be saved, but rather because Christ, the Son of God, has descended, clothed Himself in our humanity, and fully obeyed and done everything that was said here perfectly to the T, and I'm saved not because of what I've done or my ability to do this text, but because of Jesus' ability to do this text, and it's imputed to me by God. It's reckoned to me as righteousness. Then my motivation is no longer fear and guilt, but love and gratitude. I am not doing this for salvation. I am doing this from salvation. So my questions this morning are, what are you wearing? What is your core identity? I'm not asking if Jesus is in any of the circles. He probably is, or you wouldn't be here. But what I'm asking you is Jesus at the center? Is he more who you are and who you hope to be and who you hope to serve and what you want today to be about and tomorrow and the next day than anyone else more than your wife or your husband or your desire for one or your house or your car or your job or your health or anything in the created world? Can you say that Jesus is number one? 
because that is God's desire for us. And if you're honest, I hope like me, you you can answer, I want it to be, but Lord, help me. I want you to be number one, but I still have a sin nature. If I didn't, Paul wouldn't have had to tell me to put off the old man and to be continually renewed in my mind. He wouldn't have had to say that. So there is an old nature, an old me, that is still there, and it is competing against the new work that God wants to do in my life. And so, Lord, I want to say yes, I I want you to be at the center, but I also admit there's things competing with that right now. And I want you to be able to ask, Lord, will you show me what that is? Show me what is competing for my core identity right now. Show me what's motivating me. Am I doing good works? If not, Lord, help me to repent and do the good works you've made me to do. But Lord, also show me my identity. Why am I doing the good that I'm doing? Deep down, am I, do I have no joy in my Christian life? Like it's, it's this miserable religious life? Well, then ask yourself, is that because you're motivated more by fear and guilt than by love and gratitude? And if so, pray that the Lord will show you what the gospel is. And be humble enough to admit, even if you've been a believer all your life, you've been to a church all your life, but if in any way you are, maybe you started, as Paul said to the Galatians, you started by grace, but somewhere along the way it became about you and your ability to perform good works in your own strength. Let's pray and ask that the gospel would become good news to us all over again. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you so much for seeing our need, for seeing our problems, for our sin. You see our problems for what they truly are. You have so designed the gospel that it deals with man's greatest need, with your greatest act of love. And Lord, it's just my prayer that you would reveal ourselves to us so that we can know who we are in Christ. Lord, I pray that if there's any deficiency in our mindset or our behaviors, that wouldn't lead us into fear and guilt, but rather simply drive us to Christ where we can be filled with his love, we can recognize we are loved, and that because of your grace, we can live out the Christian life out of gratitude. We're not working for salvation, we're working from it. And so I just pray that this would be a beautiful time where you renew our sense of joy in Jesus, and that you would renew our commitment to becoming the new men and new women you've designed us to be. I pray this in your name. Amen.